So I bring you greetings from our congregation in New York, all of our campuses. Bring you greetings from my lovely wife, Karen. October 1st, we celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary. We got married when we were eight years old. I bring you greetings from my seven sons and my 24 grandchildren. Yeah, I'm going to have a church no matter what. So, yeah, people can leave, but your family you can threaten to stay. So. We celebrated this year 40 years of ministry, four decades, and I will tell you, it's been an amazing journey watching and learning, especially about the Church of Jesus Christ, because I didn't grow up in church. I grew up Catholic, which was the religion of our family, and predominantly the country that I come from. I'm born in Panama and came to the United States uh, before you were born. And um, Catholicism was part of that upbringing. And I searched. I was hungry to know, hungry for truth. I grew up in the 60s, which was a time of the most revolutions in one decade that has ever been experienced by this nation. We're talking about political, social, military, spiritual, music, every revolution imaginable was taking place, it seemed, in that decade. I was a product of that period of time. Growing up without a father in urban America and being exposed to quite a few things, I was looking for God. And somehow I knew that God, reality, and truth were synonymous. And when I found one, the other two should be present. So if ever I landed somewhere and didn't find the three of them together, then I questioned whether that was indeed the place that I needed to be. And that was important because part of my association with the 60s is revolution and civil rights. I was involved in activism and then became a part of an organization called the Nation of Islam, which was a black Muslim movement, which had some interesting ideas about life and about faith and about American society. I found order, I found discipline, I found a sense of identity, I found power, but I didn't find God. I found an expression of certain truths about society, but I didn't find God. So even during that period of time, I was open to hear and the Lord Jesus continued to allow me to go my way searching until he knew it was time to reel me in. And that happened January 11, 1975, when a guy named Nicky Cruz shared his faith with me. Um, I was intrigued because he was the former leader of the Mau Mau gangs in New York. And he shared his faith. And it was that night and that moment that I came to grips with Christianity in a very new, deep, and profound way. It was a church that looked like this church, Baptist Temple, 
um, had all of the church designs that you experience here in this building, which I love your building. And that night, two things gripped me, gripped my heart. Number one, I am the God that you're looking for. I didn't hear a voice out of the ceiling, but inside my heart, there was a deep and profound affirmation of a truth. And that truth was that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And that was tough. And yet in that moment, all the toughness left and became so easy to embrace, to understand. Second thing that gripped me was these words, I and my word are one. And that was important because of all the images that I saw of Jesus. How could I embrace Christianity when it was the religion of the oppressor? and responsible for 600 years of imperialism around the globe. And all of that melted away when suddenly all the images that I saw, the paintings and artwork and movies, disappeared and Christ and his word became synonymous to me. And all of a sudden the scripture became Christ. And I will tell you, that was an important starting point because it put me on a journey to learn, to discover, to grow. And unbeknownst to me, to end up representing Christ in ministry. What a privilege to be an ambassador, to represent Christ. The first and highest truth is God. That is the first and highest principle. And to grasp that in such a deep and profound way and then be called to represent it, I was overwhelmed. My pathway into ministry is not one I recommend, but it was a very interesting journey for me. I'm writing currently four books at a time. Pray that I finish one of them. But one of the books is called Why I Am Christian. And it retraces my journey, but it also speaks to why Christianity, why I'm so sold out on Christianity and Jesus and Christ to the point that at certain times in the last 40 years, my life was on the line because of that decision. We live in a time where our culture is trying to make truth relative. So there is your truth and there is my truth. And you figure if there are eight billion people on the planet, then we potentially have eight billion truths. And the problem with that is that everything can't be true. Because if everything were true, 
then there would be no such thing as a lie. No such thing as deception. But we know. How many of you have ever been lied to? Yeah. How many of you have ever been deceived? It's okay, you can join the rest of us. <laughs> some point in time, someone tricked us, hoodwinked us, you know, told us one thing, misrepresented, you know. So everything can't be true. So it begs the question that Pilate asks, what is truth? And truth essentially is transcendent, fundamental reality. It's transcendent in the sense that it doesn't depend on culture, society, popularity to be defined. It stands above it. It is universal, it is absolute, it is unchangeable. Here's the truth. I'm sitting here talking to you. How many believe that? <laughs> some of you don't. I saw some hands didn't go up. But this is true for people who are in Asia right now who don't see me, don't know that I'm sitting here. But it doesn't change because it's being viewed somewhere else. So that reality that I'm sitting here talking to you is true. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. He said, I am the truth, not a truth. He said, I'm the life, not a life which means the way that you choose matters. Truth matters. The life that you live matters. And Jesus was essentially saying that he is what is true about any matter under consideration. And the challenge is to apply him as truth, living out our Christianity, because Christianity, the life of a Christian, its life and its moral teachings were not created to be experienced in a vacuum. It was created to be lived out in the world. That's why our church is called Christian Cultural Center. Because we believe that God invaded human history and established himself in culture to change it, to transform it. There's a text that I'd like to share with you. It is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And I think I was told that the translation of the house is NIV, NLT, okay. In that chapter, a very profound statement is made by Jesus that I want to unpack a bit. I'm not going to finish this today. I'm going to run out of time. It's not my fault. It's not the pastor's fault, the church's fault. It's the clock. 
I want you to know where to place the blame. (laughs) Christianity gave me the truth about God. Gave me the truth about what it is to be human. Gave me the truth about what it is to live in this world. Those three things are critical. So you cannot embrace that without reflections on things like good, evil. Why do bad things happen to good people like me? (laughs) Makes you reflect on the origin, purpose, destiny of life. Does it have meaning? And essentially, spirituality is man's search for meaning, for understanding. Christianity had the most reasonable explanations for all of these things. And I went through quite a few different religions, looking and searching for understanding. And you say, well, wait a minute. Christianity is by faith. But if you read carefully, faith is a reasonable trust in God. Not illogical, not unreasonable, not irrational, but a reasonable trust. He gives us reasons to trust him. 8,810 promises in the scripture are reasons to trust him. So our faith is not blind, it's not wild, it's not crazy. It's a reasonable trust in God. And you go through a process of reasoning whenever you are faced with having faith. You grab scripture to support your conclusion as to why you believe what you believe. Even God to a people who were deep in sin, He said to them, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll wash you, make you white as snow. He said, come, let us reason together. So reason, philosophy, science is not at odds with Christianity. It's not at odds with faith. They will try to get us to believe that, but it's not true. They complement each other very beautifully. We have to learn and understand that. So consistent with the discovery of the truth about what it is to be human and the truth about what it is to live in this world, I want to reflect on the text in Mark chapter 10. Verse 18 is a critical verse, but the story opens up with a rich young ruler coming to Jesus in quest of eternal life. And he says, good teacher, NLT translation, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus makes it a teachable moment. Like today, this is a teachable moment. 
If you would like, I can scream and holler and do cartwheels, if that gives my message credibility. But I can't right now. So I have to let the word be credible for itself. Now, in some contexts, you haven't preached if you haven't hooped and hollered and made some noise. Shout amen, somebody! <laughs> I used to go to a church like that. I hope I didn't start. You know, I'm glad I startled you. But Jesus responded to the question. Good master, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Wow, does that mess with our head? And then he says, only God is good. There's no one good but God. Got to understand the implications of that. We're going to unpack some of that today in the time that we don't have left. <laughs> that guy talks too quiet. He puts me to sleep. I pray that the truth will keep you awake because it'll liberate you. But not only liberate you, it will restore you. And that's the beauty of Christianity, because it's a difference between emancipation and redemption. In part of American history, a declaration was presented to free African-American slaves. It was called the Emancipation Proclamation. But intrinsic in emancipation is simply liberation. It frees you, but that's all that it does. It then leaves you on your own to recover from the damage done by your enslavement. But intrinsic in redemption is not just liberation, it is also restoration. So God not only frees us from sin, he restores the resources, the dignity necessary for us to once again compete in life and hold our head up. I was on a program called The Breakfast Club talking to a guy named Charlemagne the God. <laughs> Go figure that one out. And he said to me, he asked me the question, he said, we were talking about racism, the deep divide that's in our nation, politically, socially, racially. He said, what's the answer? And I said to him, the Imago Dei. I knew he'd look at me crazy. I said, the image of God 
But I understood that it was difficult for him to embrace that because he didn't understand what it meant. You see, the fact that we're all created in the image of God, stamped indelibly with that image, to the point that when Jesus was questioned about paying taxes, he said, whose image is on that coin? The response was Caesar. He said, then give to Caesar. What is Caesar? But give to God. What is God's? And what was he talking about? He was talking about the image of God that's stamped on every human being because therein lies our dignity, our worth, our value. Not the color of your skin, not your class, not your ethnicity, not your gift, talents, and abilities, not your power, not your politics. It's only one thing that gives us dignity and makes us worthy of respect. It's the image of God. It is Christian Ethics 101. The life and dignity of the human person. Another reason why Christianity stole my heart and sold me out that this is indeed the truth. So Jesus says, there's none good but God. And in making that declaration, he declares the imperfection of everything and everybody other than God. Only God is good, which means that good cannot be experienced apart from God. All goodness derives from God. So to move away from God is to move away from goodness. And you got to understand, this is really the point that I want to run home, is that evil is not the infiltration of some disease or virus into the human species or humanity. If that were the case, then Satan becomes God in that he introduced something new. And he could not introduce something new to the universe that God created. So evil must be understood as the absence of good. Evil is a condition that is created, that comes into existence when there's the absence of good. It's true of a person, it's true of a community, true of a church, true of a nation. So I want you to I'm gonna adjust your lens today because when you think about life, think about it this way. What does a temperature, what does a thermometer measure? What does a thermometer measure? This is the part where you can talk back. What, what does a thermometer measure? 
Heat or cold? It's a great, great spot for me. What does a thermometer measure? Heat or cold? It can, it can tell you how cold it is, but essentially what it measures is heat. So cold is the absence of heat because cold cannot be measured. Stay with me. How many know what a light meter is? If you're in ministry here, in the technical part, a light meter measures light. There's no such thing as a darkness meter. Because darkness is not measured, except in relationship to light. So darkness is the absence of light. Evil is the absence of good. Coal is the absence of heat. Injustice is the absence of justice. Inequity is the absence of equity. And equity, light, and justice are all from God. So to move away from God is to experience all the things that are absent what is present in God. So sin is not the entrance of some disease or virus that we caught, Adam and Eve caught a virus. <laughs> no. It's a privation. It's a loss of something that made them what they originally were when they were created in the image of God. He took dust from the earth, right? Formed them. And then what did he do? He breathed into them the breath of life. And they became a living soul. The miraculous union of spirit and matter. And produces this unique, immortal thing called the soul. So let me ask the question. And this is the, what, this is the benefit of sitting on the front row. You get picked on. <laughs> so, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were they perfect? You say yes. Anybody else say yes? <laughs> you look like, I'm not going to say, I'm going to wait until he tells us. <laughs> well, you, it begs the question, if they were perfect, it depends on how you define perfect, Right? Because if you define it as flawless, and not lacking anything, then the question is, why did they sin if they were perfect? If we use the definition. That perfect means flawless and without any deficiency whatsoever. 
Because it goes back to Jesus' statement, only God is good, only God is perfect. So are we saying that Adam and Eve were imperfect beings? That's a scary thought. Because God pronounced it all good. They were perfect in the sense that they were a complete creation of God in design and function. They were a perfect creation of God. But they were not flawless. They were not without any deficiency. How can you say that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Eve was deceived. Right? Did you all get up to that part? <laughs> it's scaring me, Pastor Phil. <laughs> Eve was deceived. The only way she could be deceived if she was deficient in knowledge. And she was. Because only God is omniscient. Only God is all-knowing. So in her deficiency of knowledge, she was susceptible to deception. But it didn't take away from her being a perfect creature or a perfect creation of God. Only God can't be deceived because he knows everything. You can't deceive someone who knows everything. Because they'll know that what you're saying is a lie. Amen? Very important here, guys. So they were perfect creation of God, but they were not given the kind of definition of perfection that we think. Because here we are. You know, we say, oh, that's perfect. If we have an event, you put it together, you're very proud of how it went. You say, oh, it was perfect. Next year, we're going to see how we can improve on it. We say the perfect car, the perfect husband, the perfect wife, perfect mate, the perfect church. And what are we saying? We're saying that it meets a standard that we're looking for. But it doesn't come without flaw, without a degree of deficiency. It's perfect in the sense that it's complete in terms of the way it's supposed to function. That's important, folks. Because when we say something is perfect, we're not saying it's without flaw. We're saying it meets a standard. Sin is a privation. Something was taken away. Do you understand why Jesus says the thief comes to do what? He doesn't come to add problems. He doesn't come to introduce poverty, sickness, disease, death. No, that's not how it works. He comes to what? Steal, kill, destroy. Why? Because he knows and if he can take something away from you that you need, that it leaves you in a condition of deprivation. 
And he's more concerned not about taking your car, your spouse, or boyfriend, or girlfriend, or new apartment. He's concerned about the condition it leaves you in when something that you need is taken from you. When you see a person that is going through emotional, mental changes, even physical changes, the first question is not what got into you. It's what are you missing? Because that's different. See? And we won't become short patient with people because they're missing something. We'll try to understand what the deficiency is, what the inadequacy is, and say, how can we help you recover that? Poverty is the absence of abundance. Sickness is the absence of health. So, I'm getting all the right signals to tell me that the clock is still going to win. But I want you to see and interact with this differently. The devil comes to steal from you, not because of what you've got, but because of the condition it leaves you in without it. Whether it's to steal your joy, your peace, your patience, your faith, no matter what it is, he's trying to strip you because of the condition that it will leave you in. And that's why he's called the desolate one, the one that makes desolation. He wants to leave you empty because he knows you'll either act out that deprivation or you'll seek your own destruction because of that de deprivation. The power of the gospel is not that it emancipates, it redeems. It frees you and then goes through a process of restoring all that you're missing, all that you're deficient in to bring you back up to that original glory that God intended when he made us in his image and in his likeness. Thank you for indulging me today. I hope you got something out of this. Come on, let's give God a good hand back off it. Hallelujah. bow your heads, please. Father, I cannot help but feel the intensity with which this word has penetrated the soul of every individual here, leaving them to reflect on their own life, their own needs, to consider what's missing. And the fact that you are there not just to liberate, but to restore, to rebuild, to strengthen, 
to provide, to supply all their need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And that's not just financial need, that's emotional need. Everything to bring us back to wholeness. I pray, Father, that they'll no longer look outside, but look to you. For you are the restorer of our souls. Bless them and anoint them and let this word in seed form germinate in their hearts and produce much fruit that they will look back on today and this message and talk about how it changed their life. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.